0: Happy Friday! Welcome to Couch Potato Diary. Good one for you guys today. It's been a blast doing these interviews over the last couple of days, as, yeah, there's a a lot going on in sports, a lot going on in this city, so happy to be talking to some of the the main players involved in that. If you have any thoughts on the show before we get going here, you can send them my way on Twitter. Twitter and Instagram @primetimeklein, at primetimecline, twitch.tv slash primetimepk. You can email the show, couchpotato diary at yahoo.com. And we're now on YouTube. Find me on primetimecline1. Putting up some of our interviews, you'll you'll see uh, all of the interviews that we have on this show up there a little bit later on today. Three interviews for you guys, and then some wrestling thoughts at the end. Also, before we get into it, wasted talent providing the the music. Forgot that part. Uh, Find them on Instagram at wasted talent. They're selling some merch now too, Uh, so check them out on Instagram at wasted talent with X's where the A's would be. All right, three interviews. Normally on Fridays we just do the whole fighting thing, but when Chris Johnston says he can do an interview, you just do that interview and then you put it wherever you can. So we're going to start the day off with some hockey talk and then we'll get into the face punching a little bit later on. We got CJ coming up in a matter of moments. We got Michael Short from Dakota, Mr. Boxing in Calgary, uh, going to be chatting about what was supposed to be happening this weekend with Teofimo Lopez. The fight's not happening but that didn't stop us from talking about uh, Triller and Teofimo and then what's coming up in the heavyweight division and just a a real good time for boxing and then someone who I think is going to add to the good times in boxing. I, I I've called her a future superstar any opportunity I can. Brie Howling joins the show after her win in Quebec last month. So looking forward to catching up with her. And then at the end, going to go through the WWE cuts. So like I said, a lot to get to. Don't know why I'm still rambling. Let's hear from Sportsnet Hockey Insider, Chris Johnston plenty of things to talk about with our next guest he is sportsnet hockey insider chris johnston uh cj it is nice to see toronto has not burned down sir how are you today
1: yeah i think there's there's relative peace in the streets you know i (laughs) I did a tv hit though in maple leaf square this week after the leafs lost and, and there was some graffiti on the legends row statue they have honoring some of their former players and so you know i just that's just one little thing. I, I don't know what was behind that, but the point is, is there there is real unrest and it's not just on Twitter. It's, it's actually manifesting itself in the streets here.
0: Yeah, and uh, a fan base that tends to get a little bit frustrated and this does kind of seem to be a a breaking point for a a number of people. We'll we'll get into some of the the specifics of what that might mean uh, a little bit later on here. But just going back to the series, now that we've had a couple of days to digest it, uh, I said before, Toronto losing the series wasn't a factor in my mind until there was about 10 minutes left in the third period of Game 7. Like it just, that didn't cross my mind. So I I guess the, the first one, what the hell happened? Man,
1: I, I don't really have a good answer for that question. You know, I, I it, it occurred to me a little sooner than it did for you. Like, when I was in the building for Game 7 and watched the way they came out in the first period, that was the first time I was like, oh, wow. Like Because I expected them to just come take control of that game, uh, you know, mm-hmm. score early, get a lead, be difficult to play against. Um, but really, until that point in the series, I, I didn't think they were going to lose either. Even the way things went down and where they, they let the 3-1 lead get to a Game 7, I just thought, in that moment that they would, you know, that their elite talent would, would win out because, you know, that's one thing Montreal couldn't, that's one area where Montreal really couldn't match them. And then, so you, you take a step back, you look at it, the Leafs scored four more goals in the Habs in the series in total. They had more shot attempts, more high danger chances, more scoring chances. Their goaltender, Jack Campbell, had a better save percentage than carry Price in the series. You know, it, it's hard to really identify much other than Toronto played it's worst game in game seven and Montreal got better as things went along. You know, I think the Canadians, you know, got their younger players in the lineup midway through the series. And then by games five and six, they started to see the benefit of that. They get a couple wins and, you know, we've seen them now go win game one in Winnipeg in the second round. I mean, I think the Canadians kind of got it together and the Leafs were, I don't know, falling apart, running out of energy. I I don't have a good explanation. You know, I think one thing we all wonder about is this a mental block for some of the, the elite players on this team, given that they've now, you know, failed to win a playoff series in five straight postseasons. You know, maybe it was that. But I I think that that's the reason the reaction has been so the players were so upset. I mean, guys are crying on Zoom after. And the reason management seems so perplexed and I can't give you a good answer is because everyone was sideswiped by this.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's just that they've checked off every box that they were supposed to in this time. It's all right. You, you have the elite talent, check. The, the veterans in the room who are supposed to guide you through this with Simmons and Spezza and Joe Thornton, check. The, the goaltending was not an issue, check. Like, I just – I don't apparently analytics was the issue, according to some, which uh, it wasn't. But, like, I, I just I, – I, I'm happy that you're as perplexed as I am because I, I look at this and it's, okay, how do you fix the Maple Leafs now? It's like I don't have a damn clue because everything here – is what it's kind of supposed to look like.
1: Right. And, and I guess in this specific series, you know, it, it's true. Austin Matthews and Mitch Meyer didn't produce enough. you know, I, I think ultimately that's why they're not still playing games in the second round. Um, you know, but I, I don't really have a lot of long-term doubts about those players. You know, they played seven games in 12 days and, you know, Matthews hit a couple posts and had by far the most number of shots in the series. You know, he's, he's literally scored like 0.55 goals per game since he entered the NHL. If you give him 34 shots in the next series he plays, I, I like the odds of us talking about him being a superstar in that series. And so, right. you know, and, and it's not to say it's all bad bounces, because, like, I think there is more to it than that. I think Montreal limited the way that line, you know, did its business and didn't, didn't give up shots from really the home plate area too much in front of Carey Price. You know, I'm not really trying to take any away from Montreal, but I think, you know, ultimately, if you look at the least, we're built to have those guys win them playoff rounds. Tampa won a Stanley Cup last year with one line scoring and Victor Hedman scoring. Like if you look at at their second, third, and fourth line, they got almost nothing. The Leafs in this series got six points in seven games from Alex Kerfoot who started on their third line. You got five points from Jason Spezza. You know they got two goals from Jake Muzzin. You know they they got what we like term the depth scoring enough to get through. You know had the, the the guys at the top of the lineup been as productive as you're used to, and so I think that they deserve to wear some some blame for this. But that's why I don't want to go too far overboard, because I do believe if you put them in another playoff series, they're probably going to be as great as they've been really for for five years as NHL players.
0: Now, before we get too far into the Toronto aspect of this, um, despite what some people may think of the hockey media in this country, we are aware there were two teams out there with Montreal um, deserving a lot of the credit, as you've mentioned. Um, But they go out, they win game one against the, the Winnipeg Jets. What have you seen from Montreal here in this comeback and then in game one against Winnipeg that's kind of turned things around a little bit?
1: Well, I sort of see this as Mark Bergerman's plan, you know, getting a stamp of approval a little bit. You know, th- this was something he's been consistent about. Obviously, he's got some older players on his roster. You know, the way they, they made moves in the off season, they added some, some big defensemen. You know, they were built, quote unquote, for the playoffs, for the way the games are a little bit different. And while I, I get why that gets mocked, because let's face it, if this was an 82 game season, I'm not sure Montreal gets in the way things were trending. You know, if there was more push from teams like Calgary or Vancouver. Even Ottawa, I mean, Ottawa came on in the late part of the year. You know, they they, they didn't get into the playoffs by a lot, but once they got there, they do seem better equipped to handle it. I mean, they they were very difficult on, on the Leafs' top players physically. Um, you know, I think that there's a price to be paid for the offense, and and maybe that's one of the reasons by the end of the series against Toronto that it wasn't happening as much. Is just you know you're going up against Shea Weber, Joel Edmondson, Ben Cherrat. You know that, that that those are tough minutes, especially when you add them up night after night after night. And, you know, it's worked. They managed to squeeze some offense out here. And, and you know, I don't really get why they didn't start this, this series with Cole Caulfield and Jesperi Kotkaniemi playing because when, what you've seen is, you know, that infusion of youth has helped them. And those guys have been productive players for them in this playoffs. But, you know, I see a team with a great goaltender that's kind
0: of built to make life hard on you. And they're just grinding out win after win after win right now. Did that win save Mark Bergeman? Not the game one win, the Toronto one. Uh, did, did that save Mark Bersman's job? Because th- there was a lot put into this season, and then it, it seemed like a panic firing of a head coach midway through the year. It kind of felt like he understood that, that this, was, th- this season needed to go very well for him. D- did that win kind of save his job? Well, what it did, I think,
1: is validate his program. And, you know, that's important here because my view of this situation is that it wasn't a slam dunk. Mark Bergman himself wanted to be back with the Montreal Canadiens. You know, he's got one year left on his contract. You know, there have been some discussions with Jeff Molson, the owner of the Canadiens about what the future looks like for Mark. And, you know, I, it did feel like late in the regular season, they were kind of in a bit of a no man's land there. And I do think one of the options on the table was maybe, you know, parting ways, you know, mutually almost, that, that seems harder to imagine now, especially if they're able to, to get through the series of Winnipeg, you get to the third round, even no matter what happens there, you know, it would be very rare or unusual to see a GM or his owner split up after achieving that kind of success. And so, you know, it, it's, it's maybe we're still in the moment so much, it's hard to give a really firm answer about where this is headed, but I will say that that the the principles on which the team were built have kind of been justified in the playoffs. Now they're having some success in the playoffs. I think those conversations with the owner about his future are going to look a little different when this playoff run ends than, than they were, you know, say in April or so.
0: So now back to the the Toronto aspect of this, because there's obviously a lot to to dive into with this. Everyone's going to want a big move, like you said. That this is five years, this is a bunch of attempts, and it's always ended the same with the this core group of players. Do you think we see a, a big move from the the Toronto Maple Leafs this off season? I got it. This is more gut than than
1: information. I, I think there's going to be something. You know, okay. if you watch, if you watch what Brennan Shanahan and Kyle Duba said in their locker clean day, you know, they made it sound very clear like we're just running it back. We believe in this group, we're gonna do it again. And I think a lot of that is just managing the moment and and trying to get through that experience. I, I never learned too much in those days. It's not it's not an insult to those people. It's just I think there's only so much you can say in that position. the the, the feeling of the loss is still fresh. Um, you know, I'm not sure it's a big move like trading Mitch Marner. That's, that's not what I'm saying, but I, right. I'd be surprised if, they, if it was true status quo where you sort of deal with a couple of the UFAs lower down the roster. You, you add a few players, you know, like kind of window dressing almost. You know, I, I, could, I think they got some hard decisions this summer. I mean, Zach Hyman, not, not necessarily a huge name, but he's been a part of the core of this team, you know, going back to even a, a season in the American Hockey League. He's a UFA. So I think whatever decision they make, there will have a feeling in the dressing room. will we'll have impact, you know, Morgan Riley's entering the final year of his contract. You know, he's, he's a heart and soul guy on the team. He wears a letter universally beloved, just a great guy, you know, and certainly, you know, no issues there. And, and he actually played really well in the playoffs, I thought. Um, but, you know, if they're not extending him, maybe they, they look at moving him. Like, I, I think you, I think they almost have to do something to shock the system. And so, yeah, it might not, we're not necessarily talking about absolute NHL blockbuster, but I I would be surprised if they're not, if they don't do something that gets everyone's attention on the team and, and just reinforces the urgency here. I mean, we're at the point where talk, talk about the Leafs doesn't even matter what they say almost doesn't matter. Like that, you know, it's awful, but like, I think that that's one thing that they're understanding is their fans are angry because they just want to see some success in the playoffs. And I don't think there'll be that much excitement no matter who they sign, no matter who they bring in, no matter what they say. We've got it right this time. We have that mix. You know, I think it's about doing it. And, you know, once the dust settles here, I think Kyle Dubas will ultimately decide he's got to he's got to change something to to, you know, really get that dressing room's attention.
0: Yeah, the Leafs could go eighty-two and zero in the regular season next year, and no one in Toronto. I mean, some people in Toronto would bat an eye, but no one in Toronto would be planning parades or anything just based on like that. This was this was supposed to be the year, right? There's no Boston, there's no Tampa Bay. Just get through Montreal and either Edmonton or Winnipeg, and hey, look at that—you're in the semifinals. Like this, this kind of felt like the best shot, and I think that probably adds to some of the frustration as well.
1: Yeah, you'll never get one like this. Like you played all every team in Canada either nine or ten times and they were decidedly better over each of those series. Obviously, there's bad games along the way, but they 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 proved they were better than each of those teams in the regular season. And then you look at a playoff format where you're right, you only got to go through two of them and you're in the third round. And, you know, to, to, to drop and then to build the lead against Montreal, I mean, that's why the outcry is what it is. Yeah. Because I, I do think the expectations this year were finally justified. This wasn't just, hey, they have elite players that are winning individual awards. It was, you know, they demonstrated as a team, they got way better defensively. Like, they didn't give up near the number of chances. Their underlying numbers were stronger. The goals against were stronger. Um, you know, they, they were a more complete team this year. This is, without doubt, the best Leafs team, which, again, is a low bar for the last 20, to, you know, 20 years anyway. Uh, and so, you know, I think any excitement or hype around them was real, but everyone kind of, you know, you put your hand on the stove and you got burned there. And so, you know, they could go have a similar regular season next year, even against teams like Tampa and Boston, Florida, in, in that division, Montreal. And I don't think people will buy into the same level until they, they see it proven uh, come next spring.
0: What about in goal for Toronto? Like Frederick Anderson was an elite goalie until he wasn't. And now it seems like there are some question marks in that. Where do you think the Leafs go between the pipes? Well, they feel really good about
1: Jack Campbell. You know, he signed next season for 1.65 million, which is a bargain if he can playing even just half the games at anywhere near the level he had this season, you know, in the 920 save percentage wise was very good in the playoffs. I know there was a tough goal on him in game seven, but you know, he didn't let in four tough goals in game seven, like a team built like the Leafs should be able to overcome one mistake in in a big game. And so, you know, having him sign, I think is a huge positive. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see where they go next. I mean, it's, it's clear to me, they're going to go more platoon type of situation. I don't think they're bringing in a $5 million partner for him. And I actually believe Frederick Anderson is a possibility for them. I I think that he's a good fit for them at the right price point. If he's coming back, making one and a half million or 2 million, something that that makes the overall tandem uh, being paid less. And and I'm not sure if Frederick wants to do that, but I do believe all things being equal, he'd like to remain in Toronto. Um, You know, a healthy season where he's not expected to be the number one, could be the fit. You know, if it's not him, there are a number of goaltenders. Uh, that are UFA that, that won't blow your socks off by names, but, you know, I'm looking at like anti-ranta um, you know, there's guys out there that I, I think if you're trying to play them somewhere between 25 to 40 games, you, you feel comfortable with. And, and I, I am, you know, certain the Leafs will go cheaper with this option because they need more financial flexibility to to bolster their team in other areas. You know, they were paying Frederick 5 million the last five years. You know, I think they want to keep the, the number total for their two goaltenders next season below that
0: any pressure uh, I mean there's always pressure it's Toronto but uh for Dubas and Keefe like is the seat under them getting hot at all or are, are they pretty set where they're at
1: yeah I'd say both of them they're tied together you know for obvious reasons so they work together and you know th- two other places before this Hussein St. Marie and in the American Hockey League and you know he was the hand-picked successor to Mike Babcock with Sheldon Keefe so you know I, I think for Kyle Dubis, he needs results to go you know I, I think if you look at What he's done—it's—it's really hard to be that critical. Yes, they just lost the first round of playoffs, but the way they managed the cap, the team he built this year, their performance over the regular season—I mean, there's a lot there if you're his boss to say like this is the right guy for the job. But he's going to reach a point at some point in the future where he needs results to, to go with the good feelings that come with you know the the work he's doing. So, you know, I I would say the seat will be rather warm all of next season. You know, what would be interesting if we're going to game theory it out is. You know, if they play a third of the season and they they have a rough start and they're not in playoff position, you know, I don't know how everyone reacts then. Um, But, you know, I would say these guys only have one more guaranteed year. So, you know, a lot depends on what happens in the next season and in the next calendar year in terms of preserving their jobs.
0: Um, just from a, a personal standpoint, you are a, an NHL insider, but covering the like the Canadian team with the, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the one that gets the, the most coverage, and then going into the playoffs, there's a certain expectation when you're reporting just on the playoffs or focusing on that. But for you, there's also the, the NHL insidery stuff that I can't even begin to imagine what all goes into that. Is it tough to balance like, hey, I need to pay attention to the rest of the league, but also I'm covering kind of one of the, the biggest teams in the league here for a, a playoff run? Is that a tough balance for you personally
1: yeah it's it's like my forever it's like the part of my job I feel I'm never getting quite right like finding that balance and I, I think everyone in your life you can identify with that whether it's between your home and work duties uh, with, with your family and all that stuff it's hard to really feel like you're putting the right energy into to each different pot if you will and, and so you know it's something I'm constantly evaluating with myself and reevaluating and you know, trying to find spots where I can just make calls that have nothing to do with the Leafs and ignore them for a day or two here or there. And, you know, I think sometimes I'm doing it right and sometimes maybe not so well. Um, But this is kind of the way my job evolved. You know, this wasn't uh, – it's funny, like, to to take you back, Peter, just as like for way of history because it kind of explains how this worked is, you know, I first got hired at Sportsnet in January 2013. You know, I was a younger reporter then, obviously. And, you know, at that point, I'd really only done print work. I'd done some TV work, but, but not a ton. And the, the, the thinking behind my hiring was, let's, this guy has promise. Let's give him some TV work. And so initially where I found that TV work, as I said, we want to start to send you to every Leafs game and we'll let you, you know, do hits at the intermissions of our broadcasts and and you can write stories and do all those things. And so that's what I did. And then as I've gone along, you know, eventually I got the hockey night gig. And, you know, the focus of my job has become more national, but I've kept doing a lot of those other things. And so it, it, it what, what I do day to day was never written up. Like this is the perfect you know way to use a, an individual. It's just, I've added right. sort of to what's expected of me. I really enjoy what I do. I want to keep doing what I do. And so I do it to the best of my ability, but you're right. It's, it can be a tough balancing act um, to be worried about a suspension happening in a game that happened at you know, in a late, late night from my time zone between LA and Arizona, say, and, and, you know, what's going on with the Leafs switching around their second line of practice that morning and all that kind of stuff, because I do a little bit of everything, but, you know, I, I love the chaos of it. I I kind of love that it's a, it, you know, I don't ever feel like I live the same exact date again and again and again, like a lot of people that, you know, work in, in an office or what have you. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that's kind of an explanation how I got here. And, and quite honestly, my contract's expiring with Sportsnet in the next couple months, and you know, I think it's possible as part of that. I mean, I don't know if they want me back yet, but um, if they do, it's possible my job changes again because you know these things do tend to evolve over time.
0: How much did the the circumstances of this year kind of add to it? Because a lot of it is kind of developing those relationships. Like you don't just <clears throat> excuse me, you don't just get to Sportsnet and they say, and now you shall be an insider. Like you you have right. to kind of develop those relationships to to become that. How difficult was that this year?
1: It was the worst part of the job for me, honestly, yeah. is just not being ever face to face with anybody, um, you know, besides my wife, you know, but like, <laughs> but like in a professional setting, being so distant, you know, even the GMs or players that I talk to and text with, it's still nice to see them face to face every now and again. And, you know, part of what I loved about the job and before times was, you know, getting out to the other rinks and just bumping into scouts at the airport. And, you know, there was, there was a little bit more free flow of information. You know, it was my personal experience, though, that guys were actually more reachable in some ways uh, this season on their phones and stuff. I think that's because a lot of people weren't traveling uh, or or if they were traveling, say, with their team, you know, they they weren't doing much in that city. They're just sitting in hotels when they weren't at games. You know, I think everyone's life kind of slowed down in a sense during the pandemic. I know it's picking up now again in the U.S., but, you know, it, it was still manageable. It just it was a lot less fun. Um, you know, I love being at the rink. I love being in the mix. I love being face to face and, you know, trying to find stuff out, you know, that's, that's where I kind of get the juice for the job. And, and, you know, I I like where I live here, but it's a small apartment in downtown Toronto and I didn't leave it too much this year. And and it's hard to cover a whole league from here, but I, but I do think my experience must mirror what everyone else kind of went through. It's, It's no, it's not that different. Um, but I do know, I like, I can't wait if we get back to a point where either we can go in the dressing rooms or we're in the media room before the game and you see people. And, you know, there was actually a point during the first round I went to Montreal for game six and I could watch the morning skate there at a different spot that we do in Toronto. And I, and I actually saw Kyle Dubas and uh, his assistant, Brandon Pritom And we had a, a bit of a conversation from afar, you know, not, not on, they weren't giving me scoops. We were just, you know, BSing, but like, I was like, wow, like I haven't actually seen these guys except through a zoom camera for like 18 months. Like, It's just, it's, It's a very unusual experience and I hope not to have to live it again.
0: Right. Um, a couple more for you You just want to cover some, some non Toronto teams. Um, and, and after what we just talked about remarkably unfair of me to do, but um, the, the Calgary flames that that is that's the city I live in. It, it's where we first chatted on, on Calgary sports radio. Um, this, I, I thought they were the most disappointing team in the national hockey league th- this season, all due respect to expectations for Philadelphia or the Rangers. I, I thought the flames missing the playoffs was not necessarily a part of my equation this year. And, and they did it rather handily. Uh, so what do you expect to see from the Calgary Flames this offseason?
1: It sort of feels to me like it's been hanging over that organization like for a year or two. Like it feels like they're, they're in need of maybe a fundamental change. And I realize that's hard to do. You know, if we're talking about the two guys that everyone focuses on, the trade Goodrow, or Monaghan, like they're somewhat distressed assets in some of those years you know, I, I think certainly they've at least explored, you know, the way lots of teams explore never make trades to see what the market might be. And there's, there's not been anything there, but, you know, it just feels like they've kind of taken it as far as they can with, with that group of players. And, you know, I know a couple of years ago they won the Western conference, the top seed and losing the first round to Colorado, which, you know, may worry very well right now be, you know, that was an ascended team that might be about to win a Stanley cup here in the next six weeks or so. Um, You know, I I do think that they have to kind of go back a little bit to square one. I don't necessarily mean a full rebuild teardown, but, you know, I think they they have to consider, you know, not just running it back. It's kind of, you know, it's a little different in the leaf situation because those players are older. Right. And and at some point they're, you know, their production levels are going to drop. And, you know, just because of aging curves, it's what happens everywhere. You know, so you're going to have to have a plan to have more coming behind them, I think, to support them if they do end up staying. So you know, I, I don't know what this is going to look like. You know, it seems Brad true is going to remain the general manager uh, for the time being. I, you know, I didn't know if that would happen. It's hard to ignore that, you know, Daryl Sutter being back behind the bench and sort of the, un- the the power he wields. He's not just any old head coach, right. Working right. for any old organization, um, you know, and, and so I do expect the team to the personnel moves to be sort of more in his style of play. And I, and I do think you have to make some fundamental changes there. So, You know, I think it's going to be a big offseason in Calgary. It's just not yet clear to me who's moving on, what they're targeting. Um, But status quo doesn't work. I'm with you in the disappointment. I actually picked them to win the North Division. I know predictions aren't worth the digital screen they're printed on. But, you know, I I reached that conclusion because I looked at their offseason. I looked at a team I thought that just needed better goaltending, frankly, uh, based on what they did in previous years. I liked the Jacob Markstrom signing. Uh, I actually think Tana worked out okay for them uh, yeah. relatively speaking, um, but they just, they're, they're, they're definitely missing something. And I think they have to go find it.
0: Yeah. And, and it's a tricky time. Cause I, I thought those big changes should have come last off season and then the entire world changes. And now there's all of a sudden substantially less cap space to make all of these changes. And you're kind of, like there there's only a select number of teams that can just take on a $6 million contract and then to, to give up assets and stuff with that. Like, it's just, I feel like the timing for the flame. not that everyone was stoked that pandemic hit, but I, I thought the timing for the flame specifically really, really sucked for them. It did. And, and, you know, they have a
1: decision on Matthew Kachuk coming, right. I mean, he right. signed a, a short contract for a second deal. Um, you know, he's going to want long-term and big money on the, the third one. You can be sure that's kind of how it goes. And so, you know, I think it's not just looking at him, the player, do you think he's worth it? But I think they have to be reasonable about where they'll be at as an organization in those years. Do we want to be tying that money up in him? Is there some kind of rebuild retool coming? You know, I, I think that there's some big decisions to be made. And so we got to first know for sure who is the person making them and, and then, you know, go from there in terms of what those decisions look like. But, you know, they're at a bit of a crossroads in my opinion. And unfortunately they, they didn't like they like three or four years back, like anyone looking at that team like, wow, like that got something there. And it just it didn't quite pan out. I'm not even sure it's any one person's fault. It's a really hard league to win in. Yeah. Um, but I do think they have to kind of rethink what the core of the team looks like uh, moving forward, because I, I, I'm not sure you've, you've seen enough now to know that these this particular grouping of players probably aren't just one more addition away from from getting over the top.
0: Uh, and last one, Vancouver, they have a, a number of like franchise altering decisions to make this coming off season with, with basically any member of their core aside from Bo Horvat needing a contract. What type of an off season do you see in Vancouver? I'm already old for one predicting there. I would have lost a whole lot of money thinking that Jim Benning wasn't coming back. Uh, so I'm already starting behind on the Canucks. How do you see this off season going in Vancouver? I don't see how it gets better. I mean, there. <laughs>
1: They're, they're just because they're a team. Look, they just missed the playoffs also by a wide margin. Right. You know, their COVID situation can't have helped that. You know, I'm sympathetic to that, that was a difficult time for the organization. But, you know, really they're in a position where they're just trying to keep the guys they already had on the team that wasn't good enough. And, and I don't see a lot of room to, to add around those players. I think, you know, the benefit to them is that Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes are both still very young. Their more productive years are ahead of them. I would I would bet my house on that. And so you, you can expect them to get better and, and make even a bigger impact on the ice, but you're going to have to pay for that. You know, they, they've earned monster second contracts. I think, you know, it sounds like Pedersen is more likely to take a shorter bridge type of deal. You know, I think Quinn Hughes, they've at least explored the idea of, you know, five, six year deals, you know, if not even longer than that. And so, you know, I think this off season is really about signing those players and then doing absolutely anything you can beyond that to make the team better. But there's not a lot of cap space. They, they've, they've tied up too much money in their bottom six uh, in players that just aren't making a big enough impact to justify, you know, where they're, they're at. I don't begrudge the players. You, you take the money you can get while you can get it. This is a brutal business and someone will push them out the door as soon as they can. But, um, you know, I, I they, they need some some big changes and don't have that much flexibility to do it. But the first thing you do is lock up those two players and go from there.
0: CJ, I've taken up way too much of your time, man. Thank you very much for this today. I, I really appreciate it. Um, it. It scares me that you think you don't have the right balance of the the work thing, because if you don't, I definitely don't. Uh, but uh, thanks for this, and uh, hopefully we'll chat soon.
1: I think it's a universal.
0: I should be clear on that. <laughs> like I remember my, my dad once said he felt like he was
1: given too much to work. If he was giving too much to work, it was never enough with the family. And if he was spending more of his energy on his family, he felt like he was leaving something on the table at work. So I think this is what it is to be human, and let's just yeah. all do our best.
0: Totally. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks, bud. The music that you hear on Couch Potato Diary is provided by Wasted Talent. You can find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent with X's where the A's would be. And check out their new song, Drowning Out Now. Always a pleasure to welcome Mr. Boxing in Calgary, Michael Short, to the program. Mr. Boxing, how are you today, sir?
2: Hey, Peter, it's a great day in the crypto market. Everything's recovered, and I'm about to talk
0: boxing with you on a Thursday night. So, what else could be better? Right, exactly. The sun is shining, birds are chirping, and people are punching each other in the face. It's a yep. beautiful, beautiful time indeed. All the stuff um, we love. Yeah, exactly um we're supposed to be gearing up this weekend for Teofimo Lopez that that is not happening now that's been pushed a a couple of weeks anyway but I mean uh never a bad time to talk about one of the the best fighters on the planet coming off of a a huge 2020 uh where he picks up what I mean the biggest win of his career that really kind of rockets him into the mainstream what are you expecting to see from Teofimo Lopez in uh, a couple of weeks when we see him once again in the ring You know, I'll be
2: quite honest with you. I I didn't know much about George Cambosis. I've never heard of him before. He's actually a junior, so I don't even know anything about senior. But (laughs) I had to look him up. Um, Usually, you know, you ask me a question about a fighter, and I I know the stats. I know who they fought. And this this guy I've never heard of before. So he's a homegrown guy in Australia. He's got a pretty decent record, 19-0. And, you know, looks like he can punch a little bit. Biggest name I saw in his career was maybe Mickey Bay, a former Mayweather promotions fighter, and you know may, maybe he's decent, um, but it, it's a chance to see a, a really thrilling uh, competitor in Teofimo Lopez. So he's he's obviously made his mark by beating up uh, Lomachenko, did stuff to Lomachenko nobody has ever done mm-hmm. in 400 amateur fights and his 15 or so uh, professional fights, and he you, you put a licking on. Uh, uh, Lomachenko, So I, I always look for fireworks from Lopez and, you know, this kid, uh, George Cambosis, he's homegrown in Australia, but so was Michael Costinas, and he was a warrior. So you never know what you're going to get. Um, Triller is the promoter. They're doing a great job with uh, getting these guys really, really big salaries. So <laughs> I don't know. Well, we'll uh, it's an event to tune into, and uh, I think it's going to be exciting no matter what happens as a result of the main event.
0: Yeah, I'm interested to see, like, I'm, I'm interested to see Lopez and just to, to see him in the ring again. And anytime you get an opportunity wow. to see one of the best in the world, you take that opportunity. But I'm I'm also interested to see what Triller is like here with a, a legitimate boxer that they have on their network. Both Paul brothers are now fighting on Showtime, which hurts to even say. Um, so that that's not their thing anymore. You have Jim Lampley going to be on the call, who is as serious a boxing guy as there is. I'm interested to see if Triller kind of goes the serious boxing route, or if you can have weed smoking and partying going on while also having one of the best fighters in the world and one of the best boxing commentators of all time calling that fight like it it seems like a styles clash that I'm not sure how that's going to play out you know
2: they're maybe this is how they're making their bones okay so they started off uh, you know obviously part of this show is still going to be the music uh, in between fights and all that kind of stuff they're an entertainment app is what they are so they're attracting the non-fight fans. They're, they're not just attracting people that want to see boxing. Okay, so, you know, they're, they're attracting uh, a lot of entertainment uh, people, TikTokers, you know, w- whatever it is these days. Right. But they're, they're my fear is this. They're paying Teofimo probably at least triple what this fight is actually worth. So if you were to fight this fight for top rank, I think he would probably make 1.5, maybe 2 million. For top rank he's getting paid six million dollars for this and it's, yeah. it's not you know it's not the most dangerous fight in the world for him um it's it's not a super fight such as you know ryan garcia uh devin haney you know any of these guys so um he's, he's you know so let, let's give it to the promoter they're obviously found a way to keep paying these guys with are paying. they pulled off a pretty good show you know with the mike tyson roy jones thing and they put some entertainment, and I could have done without the in between fight stuff, but that, that that's the other audience I guess they're attracting besides the fight fan. Now they're going into a legitimate boxing match, you know, uh, World Championship boxing, Jim Lampley, all that stuff. So, yeah, they're making their bones and hope they stick around and raise the bar on what's going on in boxing.
0: When, when doing research for this fight, all the stories that I saw were already talking about Lopez's next opponent. Like there isn't a whole lot of, oh, what is he going to do? It's like, well, he's going to win. And then he's going to fight that, 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 da, 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 da. Um, As a trainer, when you have a fighter who is supposed to be a, a rather significant favorite going into a fight, how difficult is it to, to kind of keep their focus on the here and now? And for Lopez, like the beyond this point are some, not that this isn't, as you talked about, he's getting, Hey, but beyond this, there's some major mega mega fights and mega dollars up. Is it tough to keep a guy focused on a, a fight like this when you know bigger ones are to come?
2: No, it depends on the trainer, really. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you're a proper trainer, not a cheerleader, you, you're going to put it in your guy and say, look, you know, you're going to do extra for a guy that <laughs> you're expected to beat because everything goes away if you lose to that guy. Right. So, you know, some of these younger trainers, coaches, uh, kinesiology majors that are now boxing coaches, whatever they may be. Yeah, they're, they're going to look past a guy like that. They're, they're going to say, yeah, you know, easy work, knockout, knockout, you know, second round, first round. And all of a sudden you're there in the eighth round and he's like, coach, what happened? So, <laughs> Yeah. A sophisticated trainer a proper trainer he's going to take this kind of a fight very seriously he's, and that's what lopez has you know he's got mm-hmm. people on his team that you know for sure he's going to take this serious so um i i speculate this is just pure speculation uh peter Kahn is the manager of george Comboses uh junior and peter Kahn has also uh been engaged by triller to take over the boxing Mm. He's a he's a very decent level manager, so he he has a lot of fighters. I think five or six fighters signed to top rank, and he, he's got some very talented fighters. So I, I suspect that maybe that's how Cambosis was singled out and put into a fight like this uh, against Lopez, because it is a Triller show, and Peter Kahn is calling the shots with Triller and taking over their boxing. But that also brings a lot of re- legitimacy on the boxing side into Triller, having Peter Kahn take over so uh google well box wreck him after the show and, and you'll see peter khan and okay. and which fighters he has and stuff like that and you'll see you know he's, he's a decent level manager uh very well connected guy and so he will do some very serious action fights coming up soon i'm sure especially mm-hmm. with all of these lightweights that are kicked around now even jorge uh as you saw yeah you know, we'll talk about it later but you know Linares is not done. I mean, he's still got some juice left and, uh, you know, different kind of fight last weekend for Devin Aime.
0: Right. And, yeah, let's get into that fight now. And and I thought when you were talking about how, like, you you better – you have to do extra work in these fights are expected to win because if you lose, you lose it all. Even if you don't win impressively enough, sometimes I don't want to see you lose something, but Devin Haney comes out of this weekend having to answer to criticism on social media saying, if I knock a guy out in five seconds, then you think I'm taking two easy fighters. If I go the distance, then I'm not doing enough. Kind of like a, you guys just let me know how I'm supposed to be. And then I'll be that." that. That has to be incredibly frustrating for, for a Devin Haney, who, as we talked about last time, is. One of these guys who is on the ups in a very exciting division. What did you see from Devin Haney this weekend?
2: I was quite impressed with his performance. You know, like uh, I would say he got about an A minus B plus. Um, maybe even given him, given him an A score for that performance. You know, he's in there with no joke. Or hey, Linares was, was no joke. This is a three division world champion. This guy is legit. He knocked Lomachenko down. Lopez didn't do that. He couldn't <laughs> knock him down. Like, this, this guy is serious. You got to understand, too, uh, Linares was looking at this fight. It could be his last hurrah, his, his, his last opportunity to fight for a world title. He's yeah. going for it. Things are different. In boxing, be, because, because you fight... So few times your, your, your competition is so few times per year, especially at the elite level when you're at the world championship box, you know, let's say you do three or four fights a year at the world champion. And, and that's a, that's a pretty heavy, um, yeah. you know, schedule. You are different physically, mentally, emotionally, every single time you get in there. So is your opponent. And I'll give you an example. You know, this is just a meetup cliche story because you know, I'm a promoter matchmaker and agent in boxing. You get a guy that's two wins, 11 losses, and every single time he gets knocked out, okay? So he lost 11 times in a row, all knockouts, and your guy is fighting him. Your guy is, you know, 5 and zero, oh five knockouts, and you're thinking, oh, yeah, easy work. This is this guy's <laughs> a stiff, you know, 11, 11 knockouts in a row, you know, we're going to get this guy. No problem, no problem. Maybe you take your foot off the gas. Maybe your fighter doesn't take it serious. He's already planning what he's going to do at his after party. Hey, make sure, you know, when I'm in the ring, uh, you know, you you're, you're get me with my hand held up. This is his focus in the dressing room. Right. What you don't know is this guy's wife called him a bum. Hey, you know what? You're a bum. Why don't you just stop boxing? You know, go get a regular job. Become a bus driver. You know, you're, you're a bum. You're a, you're a loser. Uh, you know, I don't even know why I'm married to you. And this guy decides, you know what? I'm going to show this woman. <laughs> this time he trains. He stops smoking. He stops drinking. He all of a sudden takes a new look on life, and he he comes out and he knocks your guy out in the second round. And Then you're standing in the dressing room saying, "Oh, what happened?" And this yeah. this is boxing. The Calgary Flames they can lose in Edmonton, you know, five nothing. They can come back to Calgary the next night and they can beat Edmonton five nothing. But they get that opportunity immediately. Immediate rematch. You're always playing. In boxing you're not so this is this is what goes on it's just it, it, it's it's how trainers deal with their fighters and it's how fighters you know believe certain things uh you know when they're going into a fight and that either helps them or destroys them
0: yeah Yeah, I I never get the criticism of someone winning. And at at the highest levels, if you're you're starting to split hairs a little bit, if you're going between one guy or another, then maybe fine. But a win's like, it's still a fist fight. Like the the other guy is still in there trying to not get hit in the brain a bunch. So that that, the other person in there has something to say about it, too. And I just I never get the criticism of someone like that where, oh, well, they won. But was it impressive enough? So, yeah. They won a high-level boxing fight. Like that's that that in its, that in itself rather impressive. So I, I never understand that kind of criticism.
2: Well, it's world championship boxing. Lenares deserved to be in there. He was yep. a totally legit guy. They were telling us, leading up, this is a huge step up for Haney. So now why, why you're trying to downplay what Lenares did and you know and how I mean, let's face it, Haney reacted quite well. Look at uh, uh, Garcia, Ryan Garcia. He made some comments on Twitter and stuff about the performance saying, oh, I would have slept him. You know, I would have taken him out of there if I fought him. Luke Campbell is not a killer. He's not a big, big puncher, nothing like that. He decked uh, Garcia. Yeah. Badly. That could have been a knock out, not just a knockdown. You know, Haney, like, in my opinion, I thought he was – falling in love with his power a little bit too much. He was loading up a little bit too much. You know, like I, I saw him like every single shot he was putting juice into it. And I, and I just thought like, man, I don't know how long this guy can do this for. Like, you know, all of a sudden it's round eight, nine, and I'm starting to question like, maybe he can do it all night. Like he's looking pretty good. Like, you know, he's, all of a sudden, you know, in the 10th round, I think it was, he opened up, got a combination on his head at the last few seconds and uh, it hurt him, you know. <laughs> Lenares knew it hurt him because he he kind of swept away, you know, he made way for him to stagger back to his corner. He knew. Mm -hmm. But, you know, look at the work that Haney did leading up to that, though. That's why Lenares couldn't get him out of there. Yeah. Because Lenares got, you know, a little bit tired. He had a lot of body shots on Lenares. He hurt him a few times. Like, you know, he he put a licking on him, too. But Haney, yeah, like, Last two rounds, all he did was reach out and grab, like he, he couldn't even box anymore. He was still hurt. Mm-hmm. So it is going to take him some time to recover from this and, and get back in there. But let's face it, I, I give him an A minus, maybe an A. And uh, I think he did a, a really good, strong performance against a true veteran. And he showed what he's made of championship level fighter for sure.
0: It, it almost seems like I don't want to say a teachable moment, but it almost seems like something that. Uh, a cornerman, and every fighter is different like w- one guy reacts differently to something that that another guy would but it, it almost seems like a, a, a cornerman could be like see what they're saying about you like that you, you go out there and fight a, a world-class fighter and this is what they're saying what you. you better train even harder for the next one like you, you can almost use it as motivation for the next one
2: yeah and you know that seems to be a, a little bit of the the pressure that's on these guys. Uh, Devin Haney, not so much, because he's not—he's not a big TikToker, Instagram type guy. But some of these other ones are, like Ryan Garcia. He shut down about a month ago, where he says he's got to back out of this fight because he's, you know, he's uh, his mental health is at stake. But he's—he's he's losing it. And in one way, you know, a lot of people are, are going to call him out and say, "Oh, you know, you know, uh, pussy," whatever. You know, they're basically going to call him out for that some other people are supportive even his opponent was supportive Say, you know what get 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 well soon right because it is yeah. i suspect maybe a lot of that comes from the pressure like that you know all these tiktokers you get these fanboys they don't really know anything about boxing they're not boxing fans but they're the ryan garcia fans and they're like oh yeah you're gonna kill this guy you know uh, go go get him and they don't know anything knock him out you know hit, yeah. hit him with a Playing armbar, <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't know anything about boxing. So right. then they're, they're, they're just gonna be fanboys, fangirls, 14 year old girls, girls following him and stuff. And so maybe that puts a uh, undue amount of stress and pressure and anxiety into him, you know, because let's face it, he got knocked down last time. That could have been a knockout. All of a sudden he's starting to step up in fights and competition. These things aren't just peachy keen anymore. It's, it's the real deal, it's, it's actual boxing. Your opponent, nobody knows him on TikTok. Nobody knows him on, uh, you know, Instagram and all that stuff. Right. But the boxing world knows him, and you sure know him, and you know what he's capable of. And so that that's that's what's going on with these guys, getting a lot of pressure that way with social media and you know, so
0: yeah. One fighter who said that mental health was a bit of an issue for him and he was able to to very much overcome it And on this next kind of chapter of his career is Tyson Fury. It looked like we were getting Fury Joshua right up until we weren't and then uh, Deontay Wilder is stepping in. A couple of years ago, this was the biggest fight in the sport to make, and now people are almost disappointed because we're not getting Joshua thrown into this mix. That, that's kind of how spoiled we've been in the heavyweight division the last little bit. But uh, the the trilogy fight it appears it's going to be happening now, Fury versus Wilder. We'll have more time to break this down later, but just uh, I guess your initial thoughts on uh, another edition of a couple heavyweights gonna be in there slinging it. Yeah, you know, like I said earlier, um,
2: every single time, you're a different fighter, Physically, emotionally, and mentally when you get in there. And so is your opponent. So even in a trilogy match or, you know, like a, 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 a four-time uh, fight series, you're going to be different every single time. So you can't write Wilder off just by saying, oh, yeah, Fury beat him easy last time. It's not going to happen. Fury's different. He was focused on Joshua. He says that fight is still going to happen this year, 2021, even if it happens in December. Now he's got to take care of business with Wilder. And now the pressure's on him because you know everybody in the world thinks he's going to knock out Wilder again. He's got this humongous payday looming. I think, I think it was splitting $155 million or $150 million is what they split. $5 million for the undercard and the show. So he's got a big payday looming to fight Joshua. That's the fight everybody really wants to see. Nobody really cares so much about the rematch with Wilder, but There's a court injunction. Wilder won it, and they're going for the fight. That tells you, if you know Wilder's story too, his background of how he how he started boxing, it tells you what kind of intestinal fortitude, mental atmosphere this guy has for sports, for life, for everything, and how to approach life. And, And yeah, you know, Fury did it too. Fury, uh well, he came down from 400 pounds, he was depression, he was, you know, like just, he was terrible and he reinvented himself. So they're two very strong mentally athletes, obviously physical, they're both specimens, they're, they're fantastic punchers, boxers, everything. So you can't look past this and go looking for Joshua right away. And yeah. I think Fury knows that. I think that he, he understands he's got his back up against the wall he's forced to take this fight, even though it's probably not what he really wanted to. So Wilder coming out and asking for it the way he did and demanding it, even though he got you know pretty wrecked the last fight, it shows you that he's a different guy this time going in. And he's going to be, yeah, he's going to be there to fight. He's going to be there to win. And he wants that 75 million to fight Joshua.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if, if Wilder wins, do you think he just slides into that spot and we get the, the Wilder-Joshua fight that we've talked about for a long time or no?
2: Not automatically. So, obviously, uh, Joshua is the A-side in that equation. The fight has to make sense. Um, You know, in negotiations and all that kind of stuff. So, you you know, when they say a fight is, uh, you know, somebody puts out an Instagram post or a Facebook post that says, you know, Manny Pacquiao is fighting Devin Reddy. You you don't really know if that is set yet. Right. so. Until you start seeing promotion happen, until you start seeing, you know, guys get on airplanes and go to New York City and do press conferences, and now they're spending money, and now they're promoting, just because they signed the contract, even. It doesn't mean the fight is going to happen. It doesn't mean it's, you know, it's for sure going to go. So, it's not an automatic thing, but it, it, it could have purpose to make sense in boxing to say, well, look, you know, you're supposed to fight Fury. Wilder knocks out Fury. Take on uh, Wilder instead. And that's a possibility, but you know, there's other guys out there that might want to take a chance at this. Uh, Dylan White, you know, I don't know. Yeah. The heavyweight division is not fabulous, but it, it's pretty decent just by having theory Joshua Wilder. It makes it a really, really exciting, um, type of round robin that you could have.
0: Yeah,
2: and those are the fights that we want to see, and stuff like that. But those, those guys really carry the torch. I love Tyson Fury. I love his background story. Anybody out there that doesn't know Tyson Fury's uh, background story with the depression and and the weight gain, massive weight gain, and how he started and how he came back, it's reminiscent of a little bit of Shannon Briggs. Mm. Um, And the other one is Wilder's story. His kid had some debilitating disease, and he needed to make money. So he took up boxing. And his goal, we're going to win a heavyweight championship of the world, I'm going to be able to pay for my kids' treatments, my kids' medicine, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he saved his kid. That, that was why he started boxing. So this guy knows how to set goals. He knows how to reach <laughs> them and set new goals, which is what this is with Fury. Yeah. He knows if he loses again to Fury badly, who knows? Where does he go from there? Right. Evander Holyfield, you know, it, it's like, what's he going to do? So he knows he's coming and hell's coming with him for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it's part of what, what feels like, it feels like when you look at the boxing schedule, there's just good fight after good fight, basically every week for a while. And then you look at what could be coming off of those fights. Like this, uh, I don't even know if there's a question here. It's just kind of like, it, it. just, it feels like a great time to be a boxing fan. Right.
2: Absolutely. Uh, the, the, you know, the Devin Haney fight last weekend, it was so much excitement leading up to it. it. It was, it was just a really fun night to, to sit and watch this stuff, like it was just fantastic. To, you know, the the whole thing with the crowds being back in boxing now, mm-hmm. like, you know, all of it, it's just getting really much more exciting. There's lots of names coming up, lots of good matches that are being made, and I think fighters realize they have to fight live opponents. They're not going to get by anymore just you know picking and choosing and trying to be Floyd Mayweather. Oh, I want this you know 154 fight, but I'll fight you at 149 and a half. It's nonsense. Yeah. So these guys, they're, they're being pushed. That's why I like the young guns. You know, the Devin Haney, the Ryan Garcia, Teofimo Lopez, Lomachenko Linares, uh, all these guys. Put them all in the mix together. I like them because they're all calling each other out. They want to fight each other. They want to fight tough fights. They want to prove that they're the best. It's, it's, you know, it's becoming exciting again to see real fights happening where you go in and you're not knowing exactly who's going to win. Remember the Mike Tyson days? Yeah. I mean, the only betting the odds were the over-under. Is this, does this slob last four rounds or <laughs> is it under four rounds? And that, right. that's what a Mike Tyson show was all about. Now boxing is like, you know, these guys are carrying the torch. It hasn't been proverbially, you know, passed by anybody because there was nobody left to really pass it on, but... They're, they're they're picking it up themselves and they're carrying the torch and they're making their own path. They're making uh, boxing their way and they're doing it. Tyson Fury is his own guy. He's been influenced by a lot of greats, but he's his own guy and he's made his own shtick and people love him. I love Tyson Fury.
0: Yeah. No, it's a great time. And and yeah, doubling back to your point from before, there's an amazing documentary in there someday to be made because that is quite the story for Tyson Fury. Uh, Mr. Boxing, thank you very much, sir. As mentioned, it's a a very fun time in the sport of boxing. So we'll we'll have a lot to talk about again soon, I am sure. And looking forward to when we can get this stuff back in Calgary as well.
2: Great on, Peter. Thanks for doing these.
0: So big thanks to Michael Short from Dakota for hopping on with me today. One more boxing guest here before we get to the pro wrestling stuff. Like I, I said in the opening, I have called her a future superstar everywhere that I, I possibly can. She is Calgary's own Bree Howling. Very pleased to be joined by now 3-0 Brie Howling. Bree, thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for doing this. Um, a couple of weeks to, to kind of think about the fight and and recover from the fight. Uh, what was a, a pretty incredible bout to, to witness. You were in there. Um, now, now that you've had some time to kind of decompress and heal, what are your kind of thoughts on how that fight went?
3: Well, initially, when I came out of the ring and I went backstage again, um, I had different feelings than I have now. Obviously, I had time to watch the fight um, and to kind of go back and think about how it felt and why I made the choices that I made. Um, And at this point, what I think about the fight is that I could have been better prepared in terms of strategy, um, but I did the best that I could with with the tools and resources that I had. Um, I, I went through a lot of complications going into this fight, like even the day before the fight and there were some complications in the corner as well. Um, but I just did the best that I could with what I had. And, um, I think thankfully I, I won and I edged out the fight, um, and it was a great learning experience. Um, I can't say that I want to have easy fights, easy fights, aren't going to help me learn anything. So I, I learned a lot through this fight
0: is that something that's going through your mind during the fight? Like I I have never been in a fight and likely won't. Um, but while, while that is going on, are you thinking like, Oh shit, this is different than I was expecting.
3: Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) you might see it like in, in the first round and like in the first 30 seconds, I'd say I had this, um, expectation of, of what she might come out like. And I ran through these scenarios in my head as you do with strategy for, for your opponent. Um, And I expected her to be a pressure fighter, but I wasn't quite expecting that kind of pressure because she was a pressure footwork and a pressure hand fighter. And I was like a little overwhelmed in the first 30 seconds. I was like, holy shit. I was okay. I was planning on being in her shoes and and her being in mine. But um, yeah, I I did say, holy shit. But then when you get back to the the stool in the first round, you're like, "Okay, calm the fuck down. (laughs) Like you're going to be okay." Um, and then, yeah, you go back out and you just adapt and adapt and adapt each round. And even within the round, you make those, um, little changes so that you don't get so overwhelmed.
0: Right. That, that, that was going to be my next question. Is that, do you just kind of stick with what you worked on or is it just, okay, well, that's out the window. And now I'm just kind of going to try to, to kind of get through this.
3: Mm-hmm. In this situation, um, the plan wasn't working well. um against what her game plan was for me which kudos to her and her team they they put a perfect game plan together to to fight me um in where I am currently in my career it might not work later on in my career for other (laughs) people to try it on me but um yeah I I kind of abandoned it after the first uh probably 45 seconds of the first round I said okay maybe I shouldn't be trying to work at like medium or long range maybe I just have to sit in the pocket and just bang out because i know that i am stronger in the pocket but i just wasn't committing to it um so i really just needed to bite down and just stand there and let her respect me but um, I was trying to follow the game plan of sticking and moving, which didn't work so well for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the mental aspect of fighting that, that I find so fascinating because like there, as you've stated, there, there are adjustments that need to be made, but you don't want to adjust to the point where you're a different fighter, not using the, the actual strengths that you have. Is that a difficult yeah. balance to watch where to walk, sorry, where you're, you're adjusting to what they're doing, but also you're still quite good at what you do as well?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, for me, I think I've established quite well that I'm more of like a traditional boxer. Mm-hmm. I, I like to work at the medium to long range. I love to work my jab. So in a situation where um, it's quite difficult to get those punches off and get them off um, in a, you know, an effective way, um, it's it does kind of become overwhelming because then you have to make these adjustments where you're like, OK, well, I'm not fighting the fight that I want to fight. Um, I'm having a fight. Um, at a different range that I wasn't expecting and and now the whole look of it is is different but um, that's why we train you know to be adaptable to be able to to work as a boxer puncher to be able to work as a pressure footwork fighter to be able to work as a counter puncher like having all of these things in the toolbox is so important um, in situations like this because okay this tool's not working what else do I have in the box let me choose something else and let's see if it works so
0: Well, and going into this fight, it was far from a regular preparation as there, I mean, gestures aggressively at the world around us. Um, But for like, there was a last minute change and there's COVID going on and the protocols in the city that you're training in are changing by the hour. How difficult did that make things now that you've had a chance to kind of go through that and look back at this fight?
3: Um, It definitely was difficult, um, but it also is again, another chance to have a learning experience, um, to go through something like that. And everyone's going through that right now. Right. Right. Um, but i was i've been training for such a long time before that fight it was 63 weeks of kind of like being in fight camp but not being in fight camp but i was training i was still training the same load that i typically would in fight camp because i had signed with a new promotion and they had said okay this is x amount of fights that you're going to be doing this year and i was like okay well i got to be ready because this is going to be my debut um And then, you know, all those weeks went along and along and along and still no fight and just waiting and trying to be ready. And then they had April 17th booked and just like a week or two before that fight was supposed to happen, it got canceled due to COVID, um, in Quebec. And so then it was booked a month later to, to May. Um, so I had already been in fight camp for, you know, nine, 10 weeks of like intense training, and I was feeling so good. I was in such good shape. Um, and then add another month to that, plus, you know, the whole thing being 63 weeks, it was, it was a lot. And and like you said, in that with COVID measures going in and out of being able to be in the gym, uh, training in my 500 square foot apartment to then, you know, being outside and in, in, in a field and grass like days out before the fight, it just, there were so many obstacles thrown my way. Um, but I just, I knew what my vision was. I knew what my focus was and that was to be prepared for the fight in, in whatever environment I was in, I was going to do the work to get ready for it. So, um, I guess that's a testament to just like how dedicated I am to this, but, Mm -hmm. um, it definitely could have been a lot worse, I think.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, this doesn't really have a whole lot to do with anything, but just following your training on social media. Um, it wasn't the nicest in Calgary while some of this was going on and the the gym situation being what it is, there's training in minus 40. And then if you're getting ready for things today, it's plus a thousand outside. And I'm literally melting in my apartment right now. Is there a preference (laughs) training in the training in the winter or training in the summer?
3: Um, well, there's, there's
0: positives and negatives to both. Um,
3: I just went to Home Depot yesterday and bought three fans. So um, (laughs) clearly I'm not good with heat. Um, I'm like, obviously Calgary's weather is so up and down. Right. Um, And I like, as much as I complain about it being way too cold, it's it's way too hot. (laughs) So um, I, I'd prefer to train in between like when it's too cold or it's icy out or it's snowing out, it's really difficult to, to get in road work or, like if you didn't have a gym you're kind of you're stuck inside right um and then with the heat like i've trained outside uh the last couple days when it was really really hot and it's it's not fun like it's also quite dangerous if you're dehydrated Mm. um i'm sure like trying to do something anaerobic is not great to do in heat like this and that's why they put out warnings right but yeah i I'm like a twenty degree kind of person. Okay. Um, when it gets over twenty degrees, I complain a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um. So, so back to the fight. Uh, you mentioned some complications going on. Do Do you mind kind of going a, a little bit for Was it all just COVID related, or was there something else going on?
3: Um. Well, it was actually surprising. I mean, I haven't really told anybody about it. Um. But. Like, I didn't have to do any crazy weight cut or anything. I only had two pounds to lose. I was on weight the night before the fight. Um, <clears throat> but I had some health complications after the weigh-ins on Friday before the fight. Um, health complications that could have had my fight canceled. Um, but luckily, I, I recovered well. And I told myself, if you're not recovered by tonight, like, it's, it, it can't happen. You have to put your health first. Um, and obviously I'm also stubborn as fuck. So by, by the end of the night, I'm like, I'm fine. It's good. Right. W- we'll do it. I've already come all this way and have trained for such a long time. Um, so, yeah, I did feel better. And then um, I went in and did my job. But yeah, I, I it was a scary situation for sure. I've never had it happen before. So um, that wasn't good. I also just had um, some complications just with... Um, team, you know, we're just trying to mesh like we've ne- we've all never been in that situation together. Right. Um I was out with Steve Plaguette as well. I've never been on a trip with Steve Plaguette, um, with my coach abroad or with my other coach. So um it was just a learning experience. It was it was something that um now I know going into the next one, what's going to be perfect for me, which is fantastic because we're gonna keep going back to Quebec. Maybe we'll go to Mexico next time. It's just just have to adjust now.
0: You didn't say Calgary in there. Um, is fighting in is fighting in this city kind of on the back burner for now?
3: Um, well, it's 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 a possibility with Eye of the Tiger. I don't know if they're going to put any shows on in Calgary. They never have before. I did hear some words about them thinking about doing something just because they have uh, myself and Steve on on the roster. It would be a big pull for for Calgary. Um, but obviously we know that the only other shows that are in Calgary are with Dakota. And, um, I, I don't foresee Dakota doing business with I, the tiger to get a show, uh, with us on it here. Okay. So it would probably have to be through eye of the tiger, but I'm totally not sure. I mean, I'd love to fight in Calgary again. Um, and I'd love to fight on a, a card with, with Steve or even headline. Like that would be amazing.
0: Right. Um, so now with, with the, going back to the fight, uh, sorry, we're kind of bouncing around all over the place. That's but, okay. <laughs> um, but, but going back to this fight, do you go back and watch that fight after or do you, you kind of understand what went down in that or how, how does kind of the, the breakdown of a fight happen for you?
3: For some people, they don't watch their their fight footage back, but I, I watch it religiously. So I'll go back and watch it many times on many different days um, and then go and do notes on everything. Um, I also have the help of my team to do notes so we go round by round write it down uh, what worked what didn't um, what was their game plan what was our game plan and you just get that entire breakdown done and then you review the notes and then you use that and translate it into your training usually the first couple weeks after the fight you're going through those notes and trying to um make fixes to things that you maybe didn't implement into the fight, just to make sure that you've learned um, how to adjust in the future. And then after that, you you go back into fight camp for whatever opponent is next. And maybe the uh, training is a bit different, but um, yeah, watch it all, break it down, take notes and then implement.
0: Now, you mentioned there before that this was your first time kind of working with, with Steve Clegg. You guys are both on the, the same show. You're traveling together. Um, you're kind of watching him. Like you said, you, you would like to, to headline a show at some point and his face is on the poster. So that, mm-hmm. that's kind of like where, the, where you would like to get to. What's it like kind of seeing someone working at the level that you want to get to while you are like there witnessing it kind of firsthand?
3: Mm-hmm. Obviously, Steve's been around in, in boxing for quite a long time. He's been pro mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, and he's, he's not had the, the red carpet laid out for him in, in boxing. So <clears throat> it's nice to see someone who has accumulated so many experiences. Um, and he's seen like, he knows how to fight and like, I also know how to fight, right. but really the thing that you learn most from the people that are, you know, headlining shows and who have, uh, large records is, What's the like back end? Um, what are the dealings with um, with promotions? What do I need to look out for? Um, what's your attitude? What's your mindset? Like those are the things that I pull mostly from Steve is is his experiences and and the way that he carries himself. And he just he makes sure that I don't have to go down the road that he did with boxing, getting screwed over and all that. So right. it's it's nice to have someone who's got that experience for you to lean on.
0: Um, his experience that night wasn't necessarily a, an overly positive one as he comes out on the, the wrong side of a very close fight. Um, how, how does that affect? Cause you, you won and, and he didn't, does that kind of dampen <clears throat> things a little bit that night? Um, do you give it some time and then you make fun of him for that? Like how, how, <laughs> how, how, how does that kind of go down afterwards?
3: Um, well, for me after the fight, like I'm very hard on myself so when I got back to the the room I was I was quite upset like I I wasn't pleased with my performance because I didn't I I just felt overwhelmed um luckily I I stuck it out but I um I kind of felt the same way that Steve did after his (laughs) fight and he lost and I won uh so we were we're both backstage separated um in two different rooms and yeah, we, we both weren't feeling ourselves much. Um, so luckily, like it wasn't a big celebration for me and then obviously his loss. But, um, after that, when you're done the fight and you're done all of that experience and all of the like ups and downs, you kind of just want to immediately decompress. So we both just went back to our rooms and just, I'm assuming, you know, ate a little something was already midnight in Quebec. So, um, and then we, we just went to bed and I, I never bugged him about anything. Of I, I wouldn't cause right. he, he was taking it a certain way. Yeah. Um, which uh, in a close fight where you lose, like I can only imagine, I haven't had that experience yet. So, um, yeah, yeah I just gave him his space and, um, he's bounced back. So fantastic <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah no I, I was uh, very much joking about the the poking fun him thing uh, <laughs> <I could. laughs> yeah yeah no uh, I I definitely would not recommend that um as far as, as your career goes uh, I remember the, the first time watching you and seeing the the technique that you had and then keep looking down like to want to know really are we sure one one but then like there, there are more fights in other um styles before this was the plan always boxing um when you started out as a muay thai fighter or did that just kind of ah these elbows and kick things are kind of lame let's just go with the punches instead
3: mm-hmm. um i never i never thought that i'd be a boxer um when i was in muay thai i wanted to go all the way with muay thai um i started doing muay thai when i was probably like 15 or 16 years old and i'm i'm only 23 now, but um I think after a certain amount of time when I matured a bit more, I realized that it might not be a, a great career choice in terms of like the financial stability and and such. And obviously it's such a hard sport on your body, a little harder on your body than boxing is. Um, but I knew that I still wanted to stay in some kind of discipline of mixed martial arts. And I was like, okay, well, what's something that's like an unsaturated market for females Mm -hmm. boxing what's something that i could technically like make a name for myself be seen like early on um and like grow into this this career and i was like okay well well, boxing might be the best option of all the options that i have i don't want to get my arm twisted behind my back or like my leg broken and in mma i don't want to do jujitsu or anything so i was like okay we're going to go into boxing. I already know that I have good hands. Now I just have to take away the rest of the things that I was already working on. Um, so as much as it was like, um, a personal decision, it was also a business decision, um, to make sure, like if I was going to go all the way with it and make it my career, it was going to be something that could be seen to be financially stable, um, and something that I'd be proud doing.
0: Does it ever mix you up? Because I remember in the early days of MMA, like different promotions had different um, rules, even from like state to state. So one place you could soccer kick a guy in the head and the other place that was very much frowned upon and guys would fuck it up all the time. Have you ever Mm -hmm. been in a fight? It's like, man, if I could just fucking elbow this girl right now, that would be amazing.
3: (laughs) In the in the clinch in the last fight. There's there's moments where I'm like God, it would be such a good moment to just drive an elbow in, and <laughs> I, I did clinch her at one point, like I grabbed her behind the neck and I twisted her. Um, the ref called it off after that, but um, yeah, like there's obviously still a lot of Muay Thai in me, mm-hmm. and there's moments where I see all the possibilities of of how I could do it in my other discipline. Um, but luckily, I don't have like these urges where my my body just like oh. My my leg just kicks without me like telling it to kick so luckily all of that is is not a problem but um I've actually been back to doing some Muay Thai just in in the time after the fight before I get back into training camp I just wanted to do things that are like fun and things that um keep me loose and and get me exercising and I just was doing some Muay Thai in the basement so that's been really fun to get back to it but it is something that um, I don't want to do too much because it can start messing up my form in boxing. So uh, just a little bit for fun and then back to boxing.
0: Right. Uh, how much did, did it help you? Because like I said, the, the technique is very much well beyond three professional boxing bouts. How much has the the Muay Thai kind of helped you out with, with the boxing career?
3: Um, I think the foundations that were set in my boxing Um, or sorry, I mean, Muay Thai helped me in boxing the hands. Like we focused on a lot more at at Mike Miles, um, making sure my punches were nice. But I think the biggest things that translated um, as positives to my boxing technique is the aggressiveness that I had from Muay Thai, Mm. the always pushing forward. um, And then the footwork, being so light on my feet and being able to, you know, shuffle, teep, knee, spinning back fists, spinning back kicks, all those things. I'm very fluid with that. Um, and obviously there's a lot more, well, in my opinion, a lot more flow in Muay Thai, um, between, um, punches, knees, kicks, uh, elbows, whereas boxing is just your hands and your feet. Um, so I got that fluidity, that footwork and that aggressiveness from Muay Thai and, and it's useful in boxing for sure.
0: Um, I, I keep having questions about your technique and it sounds like I'm blowing smoke. Like, hey, here's all the things I think you're awesome at. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. But um, you, you you shared a clip of, of my commentary talking about your head movement and you don't get bonus points for how much they miss. Um, yeah. I remember watching old fights with my dad and marveling at, at Muhammad Ali's head movement. And I was like, it's crazy. Like he never gets hit. And he said, you know how that happened? He got hit a fucking lot. Um, yeah. So what w- was w- w- with you, w- with that head movement that you have like is that just something that oh oh, i'm I'm just out of the way or is that something that gets worked on over the years
3: we definitely work on it a lot um obviously i've only been doing boxing for two years it wasn't really a a huge element in muay thai before like we would do slips and weaves but you don't see muay thai fighters slip and weave very much they don't really use their hands very much so (laughs) um it it was something that we've done a lot of work on um and progressed a lot in the the last 2 years. Um it's always an element like you might use uh a slip ball or the slip rope. Um you're doing work on pads, um kind of weaving it into your combinations. Um so it's it's been a big thing and it's going to be a big thing after this fight as well because I could have had more head movement in that fight. Um but not everybody has it. Mm-hmm. And um, I I guess it kind of sounds cocky, but I just ended up being good at it. It wasn't something that I really had to like, it didn't take me two years to get good at it. I was good at it. And then I was just getting better at it. Right. Um, So yeah, I guess I just, I just have it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As far as boxing styles and things like that go, do you have um, fighters that you watch that you kind of try to to emulate their style or kind of, I guess, inspirations that that you watch that you try to, to emulate?
3: Hmm. well i i don't know if it's a secret to anybody but my idol is katie taylor right um obviously like i just i love her volume i love her aggressiveness um she she just kind of she's fluid and and that's what i want to be we're both really fast um so i see a lot of um myself in her and I don't know, like, even her outside of the ring, just the way that she carries herself is is something that I want to be like, I want to just kind of hold space in a room. And I just love that about her. So she's kind of like the biggest one i can't really think of many male fighters per se at the moment but katie taylor's like my big one
0: right nice um just kind of to winding down here um social media is obviously growing in importance and i i think it's Again, something you're good at. Um, but how, how, how important is it? Because like I I don't think that any of it is contrived And oh, well, today I'm going to be vulnerable on social media. Like you, you just kind of right. post what you post, right? But um, mm-hmm. how important is it to, to kind of get both the training aspects out there and the, the real Brie Howling out there as you are kind of your own marketing campaign as well?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, it's no secret that social media is very important for branding yourself. Um for me, it's very important to be authentic and 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 be all the things I am off my phone, uh, on social media as well. Um, so making sure that I'm talking about the things that are important to me, not just you know, hey, it's just all boxing all the time. Like, right. yes, boxing is a large portion of my life, and I love to share like training clips and and all of that to let people know the kind of boxer I am. You kind of have to nowadays if you don't post up about boxing, people don't know who you are. Um, but yeah, I, it's very important for me to, to post the things that are important to me, um, be vulnerable, be authentic. Um, because I mean, to have a platform like this with boxing and, and with my career, I want to be able to, um, give back and inspire people. And I always wanted like female role models when I, when I was younger. And, um, I just, I, I, I would love to be that for, for some females, like the way that Katie Taylor is, is mm-hmm. an inspiration to me. So um, I'm going to talk about the things that are important that, that affect me and, and hopefully others can relate. And that's the way that I want to brand myself um, authentically and to show all the badass stuff that I do and, and let people follow if they want to follow and, and just put it out there.
0: That that was gonna be my next question, and, and that's one thing that's really been driven home for me over the last fifteen months with kind of everything that's going on in the world is how important representation is, and just seeing people who look like you doing things that you haven't necessarily seen before. And it seems like that that's something that's kind of in the back of your mind, like yeah, and uh, you, you kind of want to see, like you want to have like little girls seeing that, hey, it, it's very much possible to be just like an absolute ass kicking badass.
3: Mm-hmm. I definitely want to be that, and uh even like after my first two fights <clears throat> at Dakota I I went backstage and like this mother brought her her young girls over to me and like wanted a picture and and it's just I I love getting messages from girls saying like oh you inspire me and all that kind of stuff like I it just makes it worth it, it right. it's it's such a nice feeling to just do things that you love and to be yourself and for that to um do something for somebody else so um, it's, I think it's a privilege for me with my platform. Um, and I hope that I can just build that up even more going into the future and, and, and get more exposure to more females and uh, show
0: them what they can do um so th- this question can be rather loaded in, in covid times but what what is the the game plan going forward now i understand like making plans next is uh, a fool's errand <laughs> this time as-, as you found out with a fight that was scheduled and it wasn't and then it was again and then it kind of wasn't um right. but w- when like in a perfect world when would you like to get back in there
3: um we were gonna be back in there in july um jesus i <laughs> right right away right? <laughs> the luckily i have the tigers um Gone kind of shows month by month now so they're that's the way that they're planning um so july was going to be the shout but i did deal with um a little bit of like concussion symptoms after the fight um so i've been on like a, a decent amount of rest since um so we opted to push to august so hopefully okay. august we can get a show um i think it might be in mexico um hmm. But yeah, we, we want to see if we can get three to four by the end of the year. I'm, I'm assuming it'll be three by, by January. Um, and then hopefully next year I can get more bouts in. Obviously COVID has been a bitch this, <laughs> this year. So yeah, next year we can go running for it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's business as usual. We're going to get back in for August. So I, I'm starting training camp, um, starting on Monday. I've, I've been training since last Monday, but, um, we'll get in full training camp on Monday, I think.
0: So you just hate time off, then?
3: Um, I, you know what, I complain about it. I'm like, oh, I just, I need to rest. I'm so tired, <laughs> and then I get to rest, and I'm like, I feel like lazy. I feel like I can't sit here anymore. Let me get out. Let me train. Right. Um, so it's like a vicious circle for me. But um, I guess that's just how it is when you're you're a professional athlete. You you don't know when to rest, and when you do rest, you complain.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> I have the opposite problem. I just never stop resting. You mentioned like the, the fight's probably going to be this next one potentially in Mexico. I, I would imagine a number are going to be in Quebec. Have you started practicing any French or Spanish at all?
3: Um, I, I did download Duolingo a while ago okay.
0: um, and
3: I was, I was heavy on Duolingo and then I abandoned it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that progress isn't going great, but yeah. Um, I, I i think i need to learn french first and okay. then if i learn french then i'll i'll learn spanish but i i might just you know try to get by with just speaking english and hoping right.
0: that people don't hate me for it <laughs> yeah just smiling and pointing at stuff like can i have that right please
3: that one yeah
0: too. <laughs> <Two> <laughs> yeah <and> exactly <laughs> yeah. man like i n- nothing against any of your trainers or anything like that you will not have a more demanding anything in your life than that owl popping up every day hey notice you haven't trained <laughs> five minutes come on
3: <laughs> oh it annoys the heart and soul. i turned off the notifications i was like leave me alone okay right. I, I don't need to to earn some points okay get yeah. out of my face <laughs> yeah.
0: couldn't help but notice it. tiktok was five minutes uh, you don't have five minutes to help your brain out come on right <laughs> <laughs> do you want to buy a subscription
3: as well it's 10.99
0: yeah uh, like yeah. all these pesky little hearts that you're losing could it all go away? Just saying. Just pay for it. Right.
3: Uh, <laughs> I hate it. I
0: hate it. Uh, Bree, this was awesome. Thank you very much for doing this. And Thanks, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll chat again uh, before your next fight, which is far too soon. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll chat again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. All right, big shout-outs to, uh, to Brie and her cat Enzo, who you heard purring at the the, the start of that. Um, uh, it, it's crazy the turnaround she might be going through, but, but like I said, um, big things are coming for her in her boxing future. So, uh, going to close the show today with some pro wrestling talk, as the WWE made another extremely surprising round of cuts. And a lot of people have got into, well, what does this mean? What what could the WWE possibly be doing? And I, I think, I almost think some people are giving the WWE almost too much credit at this point because they're saying, oh, well, there must be a reason for this. There doesn't have to be a fucking reason. They, they do stupid shit like cutting people in the, the middle of a story. How many times have they stopped and started a storyline? Hmm, A bunch. So don't, don't be just throwing out this continuity thing as if it matters at all to World Wrestling Entertainment. Their storylines are so fucked up sometimes that I can't even begin to imagine that, oh, well, this person's involved in a storyline is going to be the the reason that they're not going to get involved with some kind of a a cost-cutting measure. So, no, I'm I'm not necessarily thinking that, oh, well, they're just cutting costs now because someone's going to buy them. I think they just cut costs because they're a, a greedy company and this is once again this is the most egregious form of it um because the wwe is coming off of one of their most profitable years ever and to cut these people when you're having these profits in the middle of a pandemic when it's difficult for them to like sign anywhere or or go out and and make a living in this pro wrestling thing it it just is the absolute worst look and they they've done it a few times now i i I continue to be absolutely floored by it but that's what they do so want to go through these and just kind of say where i think they're going to end up we'll start with santana garrett she was someone who was kind of snuck on to main event a couple of times it sounded like she was going to be making her smackdown debut before this release comes I, I, I I, want to, before I go into this, I hesitate to just, oh, everyone's going to sign with AEW, because they have enough underutilized talent on their roster, and I get they're getting an extra hour, but that extra hour just kind of fits the talent needs they have now, so to add more on top of it might be a bit of a stretch, I am going to put a couple in AEW, but... That might be that might be a, a, a bit of a stretch. I think San, uh, Santana Garrett would work well with the Impact Knockouts division. Um, I, I think that they could use a, a little bit more talent in that. They, they just lost Taya Valkyrie not too too long ago, so I, I think that getting a, a Santana Garrett would be good for that women's division. And you can then kind of spin off into a, a thing w- with AEW that way. The the NWA. Um, Women's division, I think, would be an interesting fit for her as well. But my official prediction is Impact. Ruby Riot, uh, Heidi Lovelace, wh- whatever you want to call her, need, 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 needs to go to AEW. The- this one is. Probably the biggest, I don't want to say the biggest lock, but it's the one that I want to see the most. That—that That is a women's division that is certainly on the rise in the last 12 to 18 months after uh, a bit of a slow start with AEW. But you see Britt Baker is a star. And I've talked about how much I like Hikaru Shida. You have... You have something building there, Thunder Rosa. Um, I, I think mainly a part of NWA, but it is a part of that right now. I think adding a Ruby Riot to that is the absolute perfect fit for AEW right now. I I like that one a lot. Murphy is interesting um, because he doesn't really have that big name, and he's one of those ones where the matches he puts on he could fit in an AEW really, really well. But I, like I said before, I, I I don't think that you just, everyone needs to go to New Japan, everyone needs to go to AEW, and that's how it's going to be. That, that's probably where they're going to make the most money, and, and so you hope a lot of them end up there. I'm going to go off the board a little bit. I'm going to say Pro Wrestling NOAH for for Murphy. I, I think you, you look at, I mean, right now, with, with uh, Keiji Mudo as their world champion, well, we could get into that storyline all day. But I I think that you add a Murphy to some of the good young wrestlers they have in, in Pro Wrestling Noah, I think that would be a, a very, very interesting fit. And if you are a Pro Wrestling Noah, they've started to dabble in the English commentary a little bit. I think getting um getting someone that the English-speaking audience recognizes, but kind of recognizes that we haven't seen his full potential, uh, I think would be a real fascinating add for, for a Pro Wrestling Noah. So I, I'm going to go out on a limb on that one. Lana... It makes all the sense in the world for her to go to AEW because, I mean, Miro is there. But I I was thinking about this because I I don't think you would just have Lana just be part of the Miro thing now. Everyone has a faction in AEW. I don't know if they could drag because this is going to be a 90 uh, 90 day no compete with Lana. But if you could drag out the Jade Cargill thing. And then you have Lana come in and she not only is the manager for Miro, but also she gets Jade Cargill in her stable. I think that is the perfect mouthpiece. Because Lana, like, A, give all the credit in the world to Lana for really dedicating herself to the craft of professional wrestling over this pandemic. As she uprooted her life to Florida to work at the Performance Center to try to improve, to try to diversify her skill set. But it is clear her best attribute is still her on the mic. And she might be one who might benefit a bit more from just a, a bit more of a, a scripted environment because uh, of her acting career. But I, I think that she would be a, a really good fit with AEW. Alistair Black going to New Japan Pro Wrestling would be awesome. Like Him and AEW, the, the matches he would have with Kenny Omega, matches he would have with Orange Cassidy, it would be spectacular and so I know I just said well not everyone needs to go to AEW and I'm putting half of them in AEW but he would be such an amazing fit like Tommy End against all of those guys would be awesome him in New Japan would be a nice bit of a a bit of a shot in the arm to a talent roster that might need it a little bit I would hope that he doesn't just end up in Bullet Club and that's that and I I hope that Alistair Back the one thing that you kind of caution against him with is there's so many dark characters in AEW already. You have the Dark Order. You have Sting and Darby Allen. You've already gone this way with a, a few different... They already got rid of one darker type of a faction when they had the Nightmare Collective back in the day. So... It would The matches you could have in AEW would be fun, and he is most likely, I would say, going to end up in AEW, but I, I think him with New Japan as well would be interesting. And then you get to Braun, and if Braun Strowman never wrestled another match again, I would not be stunned. He, he did not come into the WWE from a pro wrestling background. He has said in interviews he would never wrestle for anyone not named WWE. Um, he rather made fun quite a bit of independent pro wrestlers at, at times for not having a ton of money. The, the one that I would love to see him in, it would never, ever, ever happen. A, I don't think he would do it. B, I don't think they could do it. But Braun Strowman and MLW, I think, would be an awesome fit. You already have a couple of big guys there with Calvin Tankman and with Jacob Fatu. you got, I, I forget his name, but you have the taller of the Von Eriks, who it kind of seems like if one of them is going to turn into something, it's going to be that dude. You have Tom Lawler, who has a bit more of a uh, a bigger type of a wrestler I guess, style, um, while well, well, he's not the hugest human being in the world, he, he still has. A, so they they, they have, I, I think, uh, oh, and Mil Muertes as well, and Alexander Hammerstone. Like, you have a number of big dudes there, and I think Braun Strowman would fit in with that so very well. I, I just, financially, I, I think that would be a bit of a tough fit for, for both sides to make work. So I'm, my official prediction for Braun Strowman is that uh, we don't see. Braun Strowman, Uh, aside from like different conventions and things like that. I, I don't, I don't think that Braun Strowman is long- for The pro wrestling world. That is going to do it for Couch Potato Diary today. Thank you very much for downloading and listening today. Please rate, review, subscribe wherever possible. Putting a lot of these interviews up on YouTube now, so check us out at Primetime Klein 1 on YouTube. Also, if you have any notes on the show, you can send them my way on Twitter. I am at Primetime Klein. Same thing on Instagram. You can also find me on twitchtv primetimepk. If you haven't got enough from me yet, we had no idea our general history podcast out every friday myself and my wife uh so check that one out we had no idea podcast on instagram thanks to wasted talent for the music Uh, next week. It's going to have a bit of a different sound to it as we are going camping for the next few days. So I won't be here to, uh, I was going to say live, but you know, uh, I won't be here for a a real reaction to the weekend Monday show. So we're going in on the Calgary Flames, looking at what the Flames need to do this off season. Peter Labardius and Ryan Pike will be stopping by on Monday to break that down. On Wednesday, James Cebalski, I chat with him about the Vancouver Canucks and where they need to go this offseason and then I'll have Sandra Persina on to break down Euro 2020 as uh, we'll be getting ready for that next week so that's what's coming up on Couch Potato Diary I I gotta say like I've taped a bunch of interviews for today and for the next week I'm having an absolute blast doing this guys so please support the show however possible tell spread the word because I I really want to to be able to keep doing this for a long time I'm having so much fun right now hopefully you're having fun listening I'll talk to you guys next week I'm out